But we're going to be looking at Luke uh, throughout this term. So obviously, Luke starts with the Christmas story, ends with the Easter story, and that will be the envelope for us. We'll preach some of the passages. We'll also use it for our Lent readings, so there'll be an opportunity when Lent comes along to for us all together to read a little bit of Luke each day. Um, but I just want to give you a moment or two of introduction to Luke um, with, with all of that in mind. Um, he's very open right back at the beginning, uh, Luke chapter 1, about why it is that he's written uh, this account. He's written it to this guy called Theophilus. Um, we don't know anything about Theophilus. We don't even know if he's a real person. It means friend of God, so it could be a more generic term. But his desire is that Theophilus and anyone that's going to read this uh, would have confidence because of the accuracy of all of the account that he's collected. Do you see that? He's written an orderly account. He's taken uh, all, of, all of the material he can find. He's ordered it in order that his readers might have confidence in what they have been taught. Now, the nub of what his first audience would have been taught was that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was the Messiah. Um, he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Um, now, when I read the Gospel, and certainly when those times when I've wanted to go back to basics and I've started again, um, I've thought of with my faith, and I've thought, okay, I'm going to start, I'm going to come afresh to a Gospel, Mark or Luke. Um, the question I'm asking is, do I buy the idea that Jesus is God? Um, and that's basically the same question that Theophilus would have been asking and that Luke wants to answer. But he puts this added element on it because, of course, Luke is speaking into a situation full of people who understand Judaism and are probably coming from Judaism into Christianity. And so his desire is more precise than is Jesus God, with all that means for me personally. But is Jesus Christ? Is he the Messiah? Is he the fulfillment of all that has gone before? And because of that, uh, one thing that we're going to be a little bit conscious of is all the Old Testament references, that sense of this is answering stuff from the Old Testament. That'll be a big focus of what we look at today. But it comes down to this idea that Luke... It's the story of a king who is coming to claim his throne. That's what the Christ is, the Messiah. It's all the same uh, word in different languages. It's basically the long-awaited king who's going to restore uh, God's kingdom on earth. So Luke's desire is that we have confidence in that. But it is also that we know what that reign might look like. That's because we become Christ's hands and feet. Um, you may know that uh, Luke wrote two books that are in the Bible. There's Luke and then there's Acts. And at the beginning of Acts, Luke says again to Theophilus, um, the last book was what Jesus began to do and teach. Um, in other words, this is the book. This book is about what Jesus continued to do and preach, to uh, do and teach. Now, if you know the book, you'll know that at the very beginning of the book, Jesus ascends. So in a bodily sense, he doesn't do a thing throughout the book. There's that sense that in Luke, we have the kingdom of God acted out in Christ himself. 
and in acts. We have the kingdom of God acted out by God's spirit through his people, us. We are the hands and feet of the kingdom. We are to be Christ uh, to our world. And the main thing that we will see in terms of what this kingdom looks like in Luke's terms is that it is about the welcome of the outsider, of the weak and the vulnerable. Um, in, within his cultural context, we see this applied specifically to foreigners, to women, to children, anybody who within that context is not quite on an equal footing. Um, but as part of that, we discover that each of us Um, no matter our race, our gender, our age, are to some degree outsiders who are welcomed in to this new story, into this new kingdom. Um, And the climax of the book is, of course, the cross, where we see Jesus taking on the ultimate uh, identification as the weak, vulnerable outsider. So let me just have, have a moment of prayer. Um, Father, we pray that you would be with us throughout this term as we open up Luke. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us uh, about yourself. I pray that you would help us to see King Jesus um, and be certain of him. And that within all of that, we may see what it means for us to participate in his kingly rule. Amen. This morning, this afternoon, I've done it again, Um, we're going to be looking at the baptism of Jesus. So most of what what you read, including some of the tricky stuff, really creates a a background to uh, what we're really going to focus in on, which is towards the end of the the reading. Um, But if if Luke was was filming a film rather than writing a book, um, this is how how I reckon it it would be sequenced, at least at the beginning. The nativity stuff, which we hear time and again at Christmas, which is actually in some ways the, the bit of the book that's given the most airtime, that would be the bit that comes before the credits. Okay? That would be the sort of little prologue thingy. Um, and then you'd have the credits. And the story would start here in chapter 3. Um, as the music fades and the light comes up, we're faced with this wild, disheveled man out in the wilderness uh, making, uh, making slightly rude accusations about uh, the people um, and offering this baptism of repentance. And everyone's wondering, is this guy the Messiah? Maybe this is going to be the main character of the film. But of course, we soon discover that, in fact, he's not the uh, Messiah Jesus, throughout this bit, is completely unnoticed. Um, he's standing in line. That's the way, this is a feel that Luke gives uh, this part of the story. Luke, uh, Jesus is just standing in line, waiting to be baptized, along with his friends and anyone else, waiting to see John. Um, he's waiting to be baptized. Odd idea. We'll come back to that. Um, and uh, And finally, he steps forward and it is his turn to be baptized. And there is this huge pronouncement from heaven. Um, And uh, suddenly, this guy who 
you didn't even notice when the camera first panned across him. You just thought you were some extra there to fill out the crowd. He comes into the center, and you realize that this is the guy that's going to be the hero of the whole story. Uh, this is the guy who will not leave center stage until the very end of the film. And this is confirmed with this great statement about him in chapter 3, verse 22. This voice that comes from heaven that says, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This story is the beginning of Luke, the, the ministry of Jesus in Luke, in all seriousness. This is when it really gets going. Um, the kingly ministry. And I want to explore two elements of this story uh, this evening. Um, the first is this idea that Jesus gets baptized. And secondly, is it's this pronouncement from heaven. Um, because I think it's the interplay between those two things that actually create the weight of the passage um, and set us off on the whole book, really. So firstly, we're just going to spend a few minutes looking at this idea of baptism. Have, have you ever thought about what an odd thing baptism is? It's just because we're so used to it that we've, we've forgotten that we get babies up and we pour a bit of water on their heads. <laughs> That's a very strange thing to do. It's even stranger when you think that Jesus himself decides to get um, baptized, but then we'll, we'll leave that to one side for a moment. Let me give you a little bit about the origin of baptism. We don't know that much about it, but it started about the same time as this story. It would have been a relatively new idea, but they seemed to know what it was um, by then. And it was based in, uh, in a Hebrew uh, water rituals, uh, initiation ceremony. Um, baptism started as a way in which people that wanted to join Judaism uh, would, 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 go, would become Jewish. Um, and it's rich in watery imagery. Now, those of you who know me well will know that that's, that's an area that really gets me out of bed in the morning. Uh, yeah, watery imagery in the Bible. If, I know I, could, I can completely geek out about water in the Bible. And I know that sounds nuts, but that's because you don't... Yeah, I just need to tell you all about it. But I'm going to try and rein it in um, this evening because we haven't got all night. But I want to point out just a few elements to the imagery of baptism that we see uh, that, that really help us understand what baptism is about. Firstly, um, it's cleansing. It's a bath, basically. Um, it's about cleansing, dedicating oneself purely and 100% to God, washing away all the evil and wrongdoing um, of the past. So there's that idea in there. The second idea in there is about death and resurrection, uh, death and rebirth. Um, throughout the ancient Near East, you, you, you may know, creation happened out of water. Uh, there were these rivers in the ancient, uh, still are these rivers in the ancient Near East, which would be lovely and quiet and life-giving most of the year, but in spring they'd have this major torrent that would sweep through and fill the floodplains and kill everything in its path. But of course, once the water receded once more, you had these lush, rich, fertile floodplains that burst forth with life. And so deeply embedded in the psyche is this idea that water, yes, it can bring death, we can drown in it, but it's also 
uh, place of life. It's life-giving. And here we have that sense of the tomb and the womb, um, which, which became a very important idea within uh, the early church, that baptism is a, it's a, it's a tomb. You, 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 you sink to the grave. You are drowned. The old self is drowned. But also the womb, that as you come out of the water, you are reborn. Um, so cleansing, uh, death and rebirth. And then thirdly, simply, the idea of joining Israel. Um, many of you will know the Exodus story, which sits beneath everything, basically, that happens in the Old Testament. It's the defining story for the Old Testament. Um, but I don't know if you remember that as this group of slaves are escaping from Egypt, the water parts, and they go through on dry land, and then the waters close in behind them and destroy Pharaoh's army that are chasing them. Um, you see again what we've already been talking about in there. You see this sense of cleansing, that as the waters uh, come back over, uh, God cleanses the people of their, everything that enslaved them, personified in Pharaoh's army. Um, but as they come out, they come out recreated, no longer as slaves, but as God's children, adopted, given this special uh, commission to be God's blessing to the world. Um, so they are reborn. So you have the same basic idea but when, that means that when we are baptized, there's a sense in which we go through the exodus and join the people of God on the other side. Um, we join God's people. Uh, so cleansing, uh, death and rebirth, and joining God's people, three closely interrelated ideas in baptism. Um, you might have noticed as we went through this uh, that the people getting baptized in the story are Jews. So this is already a departure from what they're familiar with because this isn't about people becoming Jews. This is Jews who are recommitting themselves. They're obviously cut to the heart by these rather strong words that John the Baptist has to say to them. And they're committing themselves to follow God 100% purely. Um, and they, in that, they want to rejoin the people of God. Um, that's, that's what's meant by this idea of a baptism of repentance specifically. Um, but why is Jesus baptized? If anyone doesn't need cleansing, it's Jesus. If, if we're baptized to follow him in some ways, that's, some of it, that's the idea. Well, who, who's he being baptized to follow? It's a very odd idea that Jesus would be baptized. So why is he baptized? Well, of course, the quick answer um, is the same as it would be for other, other people. Um, it is about a committed, it is about a statement of being 100% committed to God's plan for his life. And also an identification with God's people. There's a longer answer to be had, but that is embedded actually in this pronouncement that comes from heaven um, as he comes up out of the water praying. And I want to spend a few minutes looking at that because it's a lot more loaded than it looks like it is. Um, the voice simply says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Tom Wright 
uh, offers a slightly less formal paraphrase. You are my wonderful son. You make me very glad. Is that something that you long to hear God say to you? It certainly is for me. And one of the things that comes out of this passage, which we will get to, is this idea that actually God does indeed say that to every single one of us. You are my dear, dear child. I'm very glad in you. But in order to understand that, we're going to have to get technical for a few minutes. So I hope you've got the brain power for that on a Sunday afternoon. Um, In this simple sentence... uh, there are two important Old Testament ideas that get bolted together. One embedded in the, you are my son, the other in, with you I'm well pleased. Um, The the son element evokes the Messiah, this restorative king that's going to come. And the, in whom I delight, evokes the suffering servant that we talked about at the end of last year. Um, Let me just give you a little bit of a pointer about both of those. Um, The sonship, obviously there are different layers of sonship. Um, We are all sons of God by by nature of being created. Israel were adopted in a special way to be God's children. But also this is language that's particularly, particularly used of the Messiah, this one that is to come, this Davidic king uh, that would one day restore all things. Psalm 2 is a psalm that has long been understood before Jesus came along as being about this Messiah, this Christ, this new king. And it says this. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So this psalm that is... uh, a psalm of David evokes this sense of one of his, uh, one of his uh, uh, children, uh, one of his kingly successors, becoming the Messiah, uh, who will have the nations as his inheritance. Um, Jesus is this new king. Jesus is this Messiah, um, as the pronouncement says. Now, does that seem a little tenuous from what in English is four words, in Greek it would be less. Um, I would say that there's actually, there's a number of ways in which uh, this passage evokes uh, the Messiahship of Jesus, and particularly Psalm 2. Similarly with the uh, suffering servant stuff, there's a number of ways in which Luke chooses to hint at it. We're not going to rely massively heavily on it. But it's clear to me that Luke is trying to make our ears prick up to the idea that Jesus is this new king. But he's also the suffering servant. Um, and I'd encourage you to um, dig it out, dig, dig out the sermon online. It was mid-December. It was me again, I'm afraid, looking at Isaiah 53. Um, this, this servant appears in these middle chapters of Isaiah, and he's a very ambiguous, strange figure that nobody really understood until... Uh, until Jesus came along and people felt, okay, right, this guy seems to be that. Um, But let me just read a couple of bits about the suffering servant. Uh, Here is my servant whom I uphold, 
Uh, here's the quote, my chosen one in whom I delight. Uh, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. And then Jesus goes on to quote uh, more from that passage uh, in, um, in fact, the next chapter of the book. So the suffering servant um, will bring justice to the nations. It has that sense of kingship about it. But also at the same time, he is destined to suffer a shameful and ignominious death. These familiar words from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected uh, by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Uh, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. I may not have sold it to you as well as the commentators would have done, but I hope you can see this idea that embedded in this pronouncement from heaven is Jesus being commissioned to be the king of all things, but a king uh, whose kingdom will be won through inexpressible suffering a suffering by which he will deal with all the conflict and injustice which simply doesn't fit in the new kingdom uh, that, that we want to be a part of. He'll deal with all of that injustice, uh, that in our hearts and that which is, uh, that we experience from others. He will take it all upon himself uh, in his death upon the cross, which will be the ultimate baptism, the ultimate expression of that death and resurrection. So as the book launches Jesus on his ministry, um, it, it causes us to look in two different directions. Firstly, to examine his earthly ministry, to uh, to see the nature of this, this kingdom that he is going to bring in, that he's going to inherit, that we are invited to be part of. But also, uh, he draws us towards his death and resurrection, uh, by which uh, his victory over injustice, that by us and that towards us, will be won. So this voice from heaven puts this profound twist on the baptism of Jesus. We talked about baptism as going through the waters of the Exodus to join God's people. Uh, When Jesus is baptized, he does that, but he becomes the new people of God. That means that when we are baptized, we are baptized into Jesus. He is the uber people of God, the uber Israelite, one could say. Um, His baptism isn't simply identifying with us, but it's about us getting to identify as one with him. And then in terms of this idea of cleansing, uh, of course it represents that for everyone. But, uh, you know, a dying of the old self, being reborn in the new. But for Jesus, that foreshadows his death and resurrection by which we will be cleansed and be given new life. So that child belovedness, which is embedded in God's creation of us, 
but which is fractured in our rejection of him, is healed by the Son of Sons. We stand before God uh, with Jesus, our King and our brother, uh, with his arm around us. And because of that, God looks with pleasure on us and says to us, as he says to Jesus, you are my dear, dear child. I am delighted with you. Let's just be quiet for a moment. And I hope that you've heard within the fog of technicality this basic landing point. That the baptism of Jesus sets him up for a ministry in which we get to participate and one at the end of which we get to experience the full delight, joy and love of God. Father, as we continue to look through this book um, and as we look across the year that lies ahead of us, I pray that you would help us to see the nature of this kingdom that Jesus is inheriting and you'd enable us to participate in it, that we would be those that offer your welcome and hospitality uh, to the weak, the vulnerable, the outsider, whether or not they know themselves to be that. Um, And that we would know uh, through the cleansing of the cross uh, your delight and love for us. Amen.